We're live. Good evening. I'm Sarah Loudon from Total Health Conferencing, and welcome to an episode of Inspired. This one is called Trauma After Transformation. A transformation after trauma. I'm joined. I no trauma after transformation. <laughs> I'm joined by a very good friend of mine. We actually have spent the last 30 minutes just chit-chatting, getting ready for our live. So I know you're going to enjoy this program as you sit back and listen. I really want everybody to listen with an open heart uh, and an open mind and take in uh, the fact that in a moment, everything in life can change. You know, all of us have been experiencing COVID-19 where for a lot of us, it feels like we've experienced that moment. But imagine if it hit even closer to home. Uh, tonight, we're going to be exploring with our guest, Dr. Ruhi Ismail Khan, which for the purposes of tonight, Ruhi, I'll just go on a first name basis. Yes, please do. Um, and we will be talking about um, Ruhi's life, at least the past few years, uh, and really the encounter with fate that she and her family have experienced, and then the journey that has brought her right to this very moment. So I want to start by saying that you know, I met Ruhi years ago through work and we became Facebook friends and I actually was closer to a colleague of hers that she worked with and I remember all of this playing out and he would text me updates. So it was really then that I first knew of the story. You talk about that, that, right? Yes. He's like, the, he's like a brother from another mother for me. <laughs> yes, he's such a good, a good soul. And ever since hearing your story, Ruhi, you know, the reason I invited you to speak at the women's conference this past year was really because there's something about your story, your response to your story, the way you've embraced life since, and I know it all hasn't been easy, um, that is so inspiring. It's magnetically inspiring to people because as we all walk through our own lives and face different challenges, disease, death, loss of very important things, it's like we always look for examples of what to do, you know, like how do I get through this? What should I do? And I feel like knowing you and having you as a constant reminder of the way a woman can encounter something so um, transformative uh, as a mom, as a, as a doctor, as a friend, as a daughter at the time, like all of these things. And you've walked through all of this transparently, um, authentically, and really with grace. So I want to stop and just ask Ruhi to tell us the story of a very faithful night. Um, and then we'll take it from there and go question by question. So Ruhi, I invite you to tell us the story of your beloved Nadim uh, and what brought us to this moment where we're talking. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I, I honestly, I want to back up a little bit because um, my, I, I guess my life has been different since 2014 when my mom got diagnosed with stomach cancer. So and in 2014, my mom complained of just not of losing weight. She had gone to India for my brother. We had gone to India for my brother's wedding and when she came back, she was had lost weight, but then we all lose weight when we go to India. We always eat everything and we get sick. So it wasn't completely unexpected, but then we went to see the primary care doctor and everything turned out okay, um, but she still didn't feel better. So then we went and got her at EGD and surprise, surprise, she had not gastritis, but stomach cancer and worse, it, was, it had already metastasized to her liver. So here's, I mean, to me, that was just absolutely crazy because here I am an oncologist and I couldn't, and I felt so guilty that why didn't I know this? Why didn't I know that my mom had stomach cancer and how did it get so far without me knowing? And that guilt just ate me up alive, to be honest with you. And, and then I, I came along a lot of different stories of that's how you know, sometimes cancer presents like that, where like, like a gastritis would, and we had no family history of stomach cancer. So it's not something that we were, looking for or anything. So, I mean, my mom was fought for two years and she was just one of, I mean, if you knew my mother and a lot of people do, she was one of the uh, kindest 
um, genuine people you ever met. I mean, it wasn't, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be a physician today. I mean, I had children very early in my life and my mom was the type of person that instead of saying, take a break, you know, you need to stop, you need to take a break. She said, no, you go to school. I will take off six months from work. She took a sabbatical. <laughs> she took a six month sabbatical so she could take care of her grandkids so I wouldn't have to stop med school in my third year. And she, um, and she, you know, she said, I don't want you to, to have to ever face any difficulty and not uh, education comes first. And she's always been like that, you know, she, and so there's this comfort of knowing your baby is what my, my youngest, uh, my eldest daughter was born in third year med school. And so there's this comfort of knowing I can do my rotation. My mom follows me wherever I go. So if I went to New York for rotation, my mom was in New York, you know, she, she, and then when I started my internship, she was with my baby so that I would, I would be, you know, my husband and I could be carefree and do our internship. And he was a resident. I was an intern. It was, it was one of the, it was difficult times, but my mom was a constant. She was the constant in our lives. And we, knew we were very carefree because we didn't leave our babies with a nanny or we didn't leave a baby, our babies where we, where we doubted how she was cared for or they were cared for. My mom, she was, she was everything. She was like their second mom. Mm. Here is this woman who's done all this for me all my life. And it was time for me to, you know, to take care of her and she gets diagnosed with cancer. So I talked to my program leader. I was in the breast program at that time. I talked to my program leader and, uh, the, and he was very, very um, understanding. I went part-time at that time. And I was, I have to be, I, I don't think I missed a single chemotherapy treatment of my mom's. <laughs> I was with her the whole time, every single treatment she had. And her oncologist was a good friend of mine. So it was really like a family. Everybody, all the nurses, infusion nurses knew her. In fact, sometimes they would bring in my, bringing a whole workstation into the infusion room so that I could work from the chemotherapy center. So two years, they gave her prognosis of six months. My mom was a fighter. She lived two years. And in, in, in 2016, June 11, 2016, about this month, uh, four years ago, she passed away and after fighting. And during that time, those two years, my husband was just God's gift to me. I mean, he said, Ruhi, I will take care of the children. I will take care of everything else. You just give your entire self to your mom because you don't, he had lost his mom to cancer too. So he knew how it felt. He, and he didn't have the luxury because he was in America and she was in India. So I said, you're so blessed to have your mom with you. Don't waste any time. You know, I'll do whatever I can. There are days that I didn't come home. I went from work right to my mom's house and came home when everybody was sleeping because I was with my mom taking care of her. And he had no issues with that. He was such a good husband. He, he took all the burdens off my shoulder so that I could take care of mom. Even towards the end, we, my mom moved in with us because she wanted to live with us and she, and she, so that I could care for her. And even at that time, she was so caring and loving because she said, Ruhi, if I live in my house, then you are divided between your children and me. That's what she said. If I live in my house, you have to go to my house and you have to take care of me and your children are missing, your husband's missing you. So I'm gonna move into your house so you don't feel so divided. Even though I don't, I know that's not what she wanted to do. She did that for me. She left her home and the last four months of her life, she was with me. Wow. So, um, and Nadim, he's, I mean, the way he took care of my mom, I think he took care of my mom the way he wished he could have taken care of his mom. Yeah, yeah. It was just amazing. And, and I remember when she passed away, it took us, it, it, it I, I, people said, take some time off. But I went back to work because a week later, I was at work. Not even a week later, I was at work because I wanted to go to not think about it. I wanted to just put my brain into something. And I think by July, August, we were finally sort of like, okay, we need to do something as a family. We haven't done anything as a family since mom got sick. And we were planning a Labor Day trip. Um, and we were going to celebrate our daughter's birthday. She was turning seven. That, that was Labor Day weekend, and my husband had just left clinic. Actually, he left clinic uh, at one hospital. He stopped off to do his Friday prayers, because as Muslims, we, our prayers are on Friday afternoons. And then he left the mosque, and he was on his way to put in a pacemaker, um, and he never made it. And I, I think I spoke to him not even a minute before the accident. He told me that, I'm sorry, I'm going to be late. I'm like, well, what's new? You know, you're always going to be, you're always late. Right. And I just, I had, and I don't know, but 
I just never thought that that could be the last conversation I have with him. That morning was the last time until any, the normal conversation, I should say, I had with him. So I, in, at 2.23 p.m., September 2nd, 2016, our whole life changed. Completely Talk changed. to us a little bit about, you know, you get the call from him, it's a normal routine. You know, you, he's late, you're with the kids, you're making your plans for the, what you're going to be doing for Labor Day weekend. Well, what it's, it's, well, I'm on the, I'm actually, I remember I'm at the, at the sink preparing chicken for dinner and I, and my, and his nurse calls me and says, Dr. Khan just texted us that he's, he used to say, go man, go, which is GMG to his nurse, say, get the patient on the table. The GMG that he had texted that and that means clean up the groin get everything ready I'm about to walk in the door in five minutes or ten minutes and that and he's never texted that and not showed up so they knew something was wrong and I they called me and I said I just spoke to him not even two minutes ago so let me call and I called and I called and then my heart sank because I knew something was wrong I my daughters were there with me my my dad and my father-in-law my boys were at Friday prayers and uh, I, 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 I had just that feeling that something is not right. You know, he's, if he's not there and he just spoke to me, he's not answering the phone. And I started freaking out. Uh, I'm not the most calm person when it comes to these situations, unfortunately. I, I guess if it was a patient, it'd be different, but this was my husband. I started freaking out. And my daughter, my eldest daughter, she's the one who became calm. Mom, calm down. Let me just call 911. And my daughter called 911. She goes, there's something wrong with our dad. Um, we're just going to start driving toward where my dad's supposed to be. Can you find out if something happened in this area? And she gave them the general area of where he would be. And the, the um, police officer, the, the, the 911 uh, operator said, that's not something we can do. We can call, I guess the only thing we can do is call um, Florida Highway Patrol and see if there were any accidents reported in that area. And so we hung up on them. We started driving. And meanwhile, the nurses from the hospital he was supposed to be at started driving as well, except they got there much sooner because I was half an hour away and they were only three minutes away. It was only three minutes, maybe three to five minutes from the hospital. He was almost there. And his car, a drunk driver, no matter how many times I tell this story, it's really difficult, I'm sorry. A drunk driver driving at 55 miles per hour went across the median and hit him head on. And there was a passenger in her car and she killed him. She almost killed my husband. But he made it. Thank God he made it. And I got to the hospital and I, I had I had to have uh, my really good friend, as you know, Dr. Solomon, he's a really good friend. And his wife is one of my best friends. And they were over, they were coming over for dinner that night. So my daughter, who was thinking straight, said, I need to call them and let them know that they shouldn't come over for dinner. I had, and and uh, this is how good of a friend she is. Um, instead of going to my house, she came to the hospital because she figured I needed help. Um, so she came to the hospital and she took care of my girls. And I was with my husband the whole time. To complicate things, to complicate things it was a hurricane season and there was a hurricane warning and all the helicopters were... Uh, we're not allowed to fly. We try to get permission from different people to have them fly out to the Trauma Central Trem Tampa General Hospital, but they, they weren't allowed to fly. So they took him to the hospital, of course, that he was going to anyway as a physician, but he went there as a patient. Um, he was at that point, John Doe, I guess, that's what they told me, that they, they didn't know who he was. But as soon as he got in the hospital, everybody knew he was, who he was because it was a small hospital. And so they took care of him. Like when I got there, there was everybody around him taking care of him. I, he couldn't have gotten best, better, better care. He couldn't have. They were on the phone with the trauma center at Tampa General and the attending there was directing them what to do until he got there to stabilize him. And um, I saw him and I, I just started praying because it didn't look like he was going to make it. Um, thank God he did. He made it. I mean, thank God. Uh, I, I don't think I've prayed as hard as I prayed that day. And I feel like God listened to my prayers because 
I always tell you know, God knows, God knows what you can bear and what you can't bear. And that's something I couldn't have, I couldn't have. So he saved my husband's life. Yes. Yes. But it was different, right, Ruhi? Like at that time, I mean, now we can look back, you know, you, you're, it's, everything's changed. You're, you don't know what's happening in the hospital. At least you've got, thank God, yeah. your best friend, your best friend is taking care of the kids. But your mind must only be on, like, let him be okay, let him be okay. Yeah, I mean, I forgot, I honestly forgot that I had children, that I had anything. I had, it was completely focused on let Nadim live. Yeah, yeah. Let Nadim live. I didn't even, I, I said, I laughingly say, I wish I was more specific on, on my prayers. <laughs> All I was saying is let Nadim live. I should have said let Nadim live without any injury. But I, at that time, I was just saying, please, Nadim, Please, God, please save my husband's life. Please save his life. Don't let him go. Please, I can't handle that. I can't handle that, please. And um, anyway, we got into the emergency. We finally made it to Tampa General Hospital. The ambulance drivers were amazing. And my family um, showed up at the hospital, and they followed me to Tampa General. My dad, my father-in-law, and a lot of my other family met me at Tampa General. I'm very blessed to have a very loving family extended. And I have two brothers. I have cousins. I have aunts and uncles. They just, they... They came from everywhere. They came from, you know, Nashville. They, my aunts were there. Everybody was there trying to take care of everything. I don't think I could have survived without them because I didn't think about my house. I just thought about Nadim, and I didn't leave that ICU until he left the ICU. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you were so close. You were so close. To his whole journey. If I feel like you haven't left his side, You're, you know, every time, every step of the way, you well, have. It's been so, honestly, Sarah, it's been like a bit crazy because his, this course that we've had over the last four years, there's, there's so many ups and there's so many downs. And every time I think that we're going up, 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 something will happen where we have to, I feel like two steps forward or one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. And I started learning more about brain injury than I have. I started reading about it more than I did oncology. Like, I feel like I read more articles about brain injury to educate myself on rehab, because there were so many negative people too during this journey. Um, one of the doctors, one of the neurologists, and of course we fired him, but one of the neurologists told me that he's not gonna get better, that he's gonna be a vegetable for his, the rest of his life. And obviously that's not something I'm gonna hear and I, anything I'm gonna believe in. I don't think any doctor has, uh, he was a fellow in training, but any, I don't think any doctor has a right to say that. And uh, I didn't want, but the attending on the service was always a hopeful. He always said, no, no, sometimes, you know, it's, it's by statistically, he doesn't have a chance of recovering. Statistically, he's not going to do well. Statistically, he'll never walk again. But have I seen someone walk again in this situation? Yes. Yeah. Someone speak again? Yes. Yeah. So I hung on to. My husband is going to be part of that 10%. Yeah. Every time they said only 10% of patients will do this, well, I kept saying, no, my husband will be part of that 10%. Anything about the ninety percent? I just refused to, to hear it. They said, "Well, there's only a ten percent, fifteen percent chance he'll wake up." Well, three weeks later, he woke up. Good, good. From his coma. So, Rudy, yeah. when he woke up, what were you, or did you have any expectations? Like, what were you expecting based on what you knew, both as a physician and what the doctors were communicating with you? The biggest, the best, the best piece of advice that I got during this whole journey was from. Um, woman physician docs that I met through the, this group that we have called PMG. I'm sure you know all about a physician's mom's group. And I had reached out to them and I said, please, all the PMRs who have specialized in brain injury, guide me. Please guide me. What, is the, what, is, what do I need to do for my husband? That I, I want to do everything right. I want to make sure he goes to the best places, gets the best rehab. And everybody was saying, do not, do not let him go to a, they were trying to send us after he woke up from the coma to Connerton or Kindred, which were nursing homes. Mm. And they, they said, do not do that. Absolutely not. Because I didn't feel comfortable with that either. Bring him to acute rehab. Well, then all the rehabs in the area, they were saying, well, his rancho score, and these are, these are scores that they give patients who are just waking up from a coma, they're, how much they're progressing. And his rancho score was too low. He was still in a vegetative, minimally conscious state to go to these rehabs. So I found out about, I found out about the disorders of consciousness programs 
And these programs exist in very few centers in the country. And one of them was Shepherd Atlanta, which had the best, one of the best reputations. So we flew him in Atlanta, I got, you know, and I guess the only one of the, you know, there's, they say look for blessings and everything. The blessing is that he was on his way to work. He was in between work. So mm-hmm. their workers comp was able to cover a lot of this. Mm-hmm. So because he was during, the, he was part of the, his, uh, uh, part of the day that he works, workers comp was insurance that allowed us. Otherwise, if we had regular insurance, he probably wouldn't have gotten to those places. Wow. So, um, yeah, so we got to Shepherd Center and he made a lot of progress there. I mean, a lot of progress. He's, his peg tube came out. He, his trait came out. Um, he was sitting, he was talking to me. He was confused like heck. He had what they called, um, I forget the name, but it's when your high blood pressure and your heart rate starts swinging. And it'll come to me after the interview, of course. <laughs> For now, I'm, uh, I'm blocking on the name. But his, uh, it took a lot of a while to stabilize from that brain, from the initial waking up. And when we left Shepherd Center, he was feeding himself. Uh, he, I mean, all this progress that he had made within October when we got there, and at least a, a month he was, three weeks to four weeks he was in a coma. We flew out there October 1st, October, November, December, January, February. We got, we find a rehab close to home, Florida and Orlando, near Orlando, and we were there. There, uh, I don't want to say the name of the rehab center. He didn't get the care he needed. Mm. Um, I I still wasn't working because I wasn't. I didn't trust the place. I stayed with him. I argued a lot because I wanted to stay with him, and it wasn't really made for spouses to stay. But they let me stay there. And every weekend the kids would come. They would drive. My daughter had just started driving. Thank God. <laughs> every weekend they would come to join us. And for a while there, he looked like he was continuing to improve physically. And then so I. I, I said, okay, it's time for me to go to work. I can't stay off from work so long. So I started going to work three days a week. So I would drive down and would work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, and I would f- uh, drive back Thursday afternoon. I'd stay with my husband Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And then Tuesday morning I would leave to come to work. So three days here, four days there, sort of. And I had a, a caregiver taking care of him on the three days that I was at work. And that worked for a few months, but then my husband developed new onset, what they called traumatic brain injury seizures. Mm-hmm. And we were at square one again. All the progress we made, lost, completely lost. And that's when we had to, we flew him to another rehab center that said that we could, we could help again through the whole my network. So the network is so important. I'm so blessed. And Dr. Gutierrez, who I'm sure everyone knows pretty well, she was at Tier at that time, and she. She took him on, took him on, and that whole team, Dr. Falco, Dr. Gutierrez, they worked on him, and he went there, he was there almost for a year and a half. Yeah. And it was amazing the how, how dedicated they were, how dedicated they were, and I, I, I did, I stayed, I took a few months off to stay with him, and then when he was doing better, I did the same thing like before, except I was flying. So I would fly, I would fly here Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I would work, and then I would fly uh, back to, to stay with him Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and so, so four days in Texas, three days in Tampa, and I, we did this for almost two years. Wow. Who was staying with the kids when this was, when you were doing My this? family, my family, yeah, my family was there, and my brothers, uh, they, they were there. Um, my, my youngest brother, he pretty much moved in with my, my sister-in-law, my youngest sister-in-law, she moved in and they stayed with them. On the, during the weekdays, I have a nanny who helps. So the whole, it was, there was a lot of help. And I learned this later, but the whole Muslim community here, the ladies in this community, they were cooking for my kids, constantly delivering food. And I didn't even know about that. They just totally took over so I could focus on Nadim. So I'm very, that way I'm very blessed, yeah. So, I mean, what a story. First of all, I think, you know, everybody listening is feeling it with you, you know, as you're telling the story in steps. I know I was as I was observing it and seeing you going from place to place to place. And again, just like watching your devotion, because there is a part of it that is devotion. There's a part of it that's uncertainty and fear. There's a part of it that probably, you know, says, I, I want to make sure that I'm here just in case that there's anything, you know, that happens, um, that he's not going to be alone. Um, and at the same time, you're still mom, 
you're still Dr. Ruhi Ismail Khan. Um, you're still sister. You know, all those roles that you had remained just in this new, you know, way. So when do you start to think, I've got to start putting the pieces of my life back together in a way that's sustainable, that I still can be caretaker to Nadim, but that I could honor, um, you know, my own calling in life, especially as your mom always prioritized that. How did you yeah. come to making those decisions? Honestly, there was a point where I honestly didn't know what, what the next steps were. And uh, when I first came home, I still remember the first time I came home after the ICU was to pack a bag to go to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I was two hours at home. And even those two hours felt too long to be away from Nadine because what if he wakes up? What if he calls my name? I wouldn't leave him because I was afraid. But when I came home, the first thing I saw was his bathrobe hung over the closet the morning he left for the accident, the toothbrush. I mean, it's almost like it was just a pause on my life and everything changed. And I didn't, I just, that was the first time I just sat down and just cried because I didn't know where to go. Because Nadine was a very involved husband and a very involved father. Yes. I, I he, he, you know, it's, you know our, our life was a partnership. And, you know, he, it was, it was, my life was so easy. People always ask, oh, how did you handle four kids then being a doctor and doing this and doing that? It's because I had a husband who helped me in every aspect of it. It was like, I had to do everything. He, 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 um, he made, it, it was like a well-oiled machine yeah. together. And, and suddenly uh, two of the wheels were off and I really didn't know what to do. And I had my family, my brothers and my two sister-in-laws made it so, made it so that I wouldn't have to think so much at at that point. They're like, just take care of Nadine, just take care of the what they call them, they just take a, a care of your husband and let, let us take care of everything else. And I depended on them and I don't like to depend on people, but I needed to learn how to depend on people and uh, depend on my brothers and my family. And uh, I did. And my sister-in-laws, they, they, I mean, to be honest with you, I say sister-in-laws, but they're more than sister-in-laws, they're sisters to me. They've always there. If I, I couldn't, I couldn't have had better sisters. They were so amazing, from you know, from organizing things, for cooking, from helping me do simple things like taking out the you know the, the lawn, the the meal, all of things that you forget about. And three years is a long time, you know. And when you come back, you realize everything's a disaster, and you're going to have to pick up the pieces. And I think the thing that that encouraged me the most is seeing my children and how well they managed and how much, how resilient they are. Children are so resilient. And I realized that they were taking care of my emotions. They were helping me and I was like, wait, something's wrong here. I really need to be the mom again. I really need to tell these kids feel like they have a mom and not someone who's gonna fall apart at any moment. And I, I just decided this is it. We're gonna be happy in any state that we are gonna be in and I'm gonna be the mom they need me to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, it, and I, I, my career is something that I absolutely love. It's, I love being an oncologist. And just be, before my husband's accident, I was already doing some research in cardio-oncology and working with Mike Fradley at Moffitt. So it just made sense to me to sort of bring everything together. So I decided to make cardio-oncology my priority because it sort of connected me to my husband's career, a cardiologist. So it just, it's something that I, I've, I truly valued. Um, it, uh, not only not only from the academic perspective, but the personal perspective as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it it just to me it just it it just made common sense. This is where I would go. This yeah. this life event would lead me to this career, a new career, a new a new uh, not really a new career, but a new uh, focus, mm -hmm. where I would represent myself and my husband, and and so that's what I did. It's so beautiful. How much does Nadim communicate with you and how much does he remember, if anything, about the accident? Nadim doesn't remember the accident except for moments at a time. So, for example, if he asked me right now what happened, I'll, I can tell him what happened and he will understand for a moment. And, but then he, later on, a week later, a few days later, he'll ask me what happened again. And I will ask him sometimes what happened and he will say things like something bad, something bad. He understands there's something that happened to change him, but he can't remember exactly the details of what happened. Now, 
noticed a little bit improvements in some short-term memory. He has really no short-term memory. He knows who I am. He knows who the kids are. He knows who his family, his father, his sister, his brother. He knows who he loves, you know, and he knows his career. He, if you ask him what he did, he'll tell you he's a cardiologist, you know, so he knows who he was and who he is. But if you ask him what he did yesterday, he can't tell you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really sad, and I'm hoping that will improve with time. But right now, I've learned to hang on to the positives. Um, and this is really, really important to me. I still, I have my husband who's alive, who still smiles when the kids make funny jokes, who still chuckles when there's a funny joke on a TV, uh, who tells me I love you, who tells the kids uh, that he loves them, who, who's still there with us. Yes. And where, when there's, when he's here, there's hope. Yes. I refuse, I, I don't care how long it takes, the one thing I keep telling my husband is that you're only 49, you know, and I'm only 46. So I'm, we're going to age gracefully and we're going to, you know, we have the rest of our lives to improve, you know, and as long as there is time, as long as there is that he's here, there's hope for him, him to improve. And that's what I hang on to. That's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. I love that you post his progress from time to time. I feel like you have a world of cheerleaders on Facebook and your other social media platforms. My delivery girl just delivered a tissue. I watching. It's really something to see. And you, you oftentimes will post, you know, pictures uh, before pictures. And then you'll post in the same, almost like the same collage, an after picture. And for people like me and like others who are in your life, who've walked through life, it very much feels like a continuum. Like that was Nadim and this is Nadim. And you know, you just kind of know the journey, but I know that there's hard times too, Ruby, where it's yeah. like you long I, that old husband, you know, like that old partner, as you said. How do you- The, essence, the essence of them hasn't changed. Yeah of them hasn't changed and that's what I hold on to. He's still a very kind, considerate man. Yeah. He loves me so much with all his heart. The biggest thing he says to me is, I'm sorry. I mean, what are you sorry about? He says, I'm sorry. And he, I know what he's trying to say, that he's sorry that all this happened that I'm dealing with. But and then I said, why are you sorry? I'm sorry for you. What you're dealing with a hundred times more than I'm dealing with. Why are you saying sorry? You know, so he's still that kind, loving person that I married. And he still has a temper sometimes. <laughs> he can get moody sometimes. But I like those emotions that come through. He's there. Yes, he can't take care of himself and he requires 24-7 nursing. And that breaks my heart. But the way I look at it is that I pray that I, am, I keep myself healthy and I've started exercising. And I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a little OCD about nutrition and exercise now because I want to be around for him. I don't want to get sick. I want to be there for the long run because I want to be here as long as he needs me. And as long as he has me, it's okay that he needs somebody 24 seven. Mm. That's how I look at it. And, um, you know, and, and my kids have told me the same. I said, mom, don't worry. We're here for you. We're going to be, you know, we're not going anywhere. So, you know, he has us, he has all of us. And, and, and he's very blessed that way. Yes, beautiful, beautiful family. Do you talk to him about how your career has transformed? Do you? I do. I show him pictures of presentations and talks and, and projects I'm working on. And when I have a new publication, I show him, look Nadim, look what he did. And um, I dedicated my, a few of my lectures to him, as you know, and because essentially he helped me with this a lot. And so, um, yeah, I do. And he, he's always been the type of person who got so happy when I, I did well on something, you know. I remember, I will take you back, um, I remember after I finished internal medicine, I was like, I want to do oncology, but I've got two kids and I've got a third one on the way. I don't think that's practical. I think I should just do, do internal medicine or join a private practice and, you know, that's what I'll do. You know, I think that's more, and you're the cardiologist, how are we? He said, are you crazy? That's what he said. Are you crazy? Don't, you're going to look 10, 10 years later and you're going to blame me. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. You're going to do what you want and I'll be there. I'm not going anywhere. You're going to do what you want. 
I would have probably not even applied to Himal Fellowship if it wasn't for him. Wow. So, I mean, we grew up together. He, uh, we married very young. We had kids very young. And I'm, I'm thankful for that too. At that time, I used to complain. I'm like, oh my gosh, I had children so young. Everybody else is able to get up and go right now, and I'm not. But imagine if I had all four young kids right now, how difficult it would be. Yeah. So I think God does everything for a reason. Thank yeah. God I have two college kids who can help me. Thank God they're mature enough to help me, you know? And Rui, how has your faith, what, what role has your faith played? I mean, you talk about praying, you know, praying to God when you heard what happened in, in the hospital, when you saw, how has your faith carried you through? So God and I have had different relationships over this last four years in the sense that I feel very close to God. I, I pray to him and, and I, 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 I begged him when I needed something. But when Nadim had a seizure, when Nadim gets sick, I get really upset too. I say, God, what are you doing? How much are you going to test me? Haven't I paid enough? Why, how much can one person take? Like after mom died, I thought that was the worst thing that could happen. And then this, you know, I, yeah, at least with mom, I had a time to say goodbye over two years and I got to plan every second with her. What is this? What is this? But then I remember God saved him and, and, and that God, he's improving. So I always say, you know, there must be a reason behind this. There must be some reason behind it, what he's doing. And maybe it is for me to be a better doctor. Because I know I can tell you, I, I feel like I'm a much better doctor than I've ever been with my, what I've experienced with my mom and with my husband. I, I feel that uh, I can... You know, the other day I was sitting on the phone with a hospice patient for an hour trying to figure out what she wants because she wasn't ready for hospice yet. And it brought me back to my mom and how she was not ready for hospice. And maybe I wouldn't have been that patient if, if that hadn't happened to me. And I got where she was coming from. And I spoke to the hospice doctor and the nurse to try to be gentle with her. And it took me an hour. Normally I would just say consult hospice, but I don't do that anymore. I want to, I make sure that my patients, when they go to hospice, that they're comfortable with the team who's going to take care of them at home. And I try to inform them of what kind of care they need and what kind of personality they are at home. So I do think it's made me a better physician. I think that it's made me, made me a better mother, a better caregiver. And yes, I get tired. I'm not, I'm not superhuman. I get exhausted. But I'm also very blessed. I mean, if I wasn't a physician, I wouldn't be able to, to get him the therapy he needs. If, if he wasn't a physician or if I didn't have disability insurance, I don't think I could do, we could do what we have or what, what for him and send him to centers and get him the equipment that he needs. And I take that opportunity to help those like Nadine who don't have those opportunities. It's so beautiful. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you say that you think you're a much better doctor. The whole field of cardio-oncology really over the last probably two years has exploded in terms of considering the effects on the heart from you know what you what we do to intervene uh, with cancer and how important that cardiology oncology relationship is. Absolutely, I feel so much that you know you're in this position now where not only do you look at it as something a topic of interest, but because you use it. So even before, even much before Nadim's accident and my mom's illness. I had my interest in cardio oncology began with a patient, with one patient, and she's a very good friend of mine now. <laughs> so she, I was, uh, and I presented her case to you at the women's meeting we had. Um, this young lady, healthy as a horse, um, uh, strong, uh, was diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer, went to chemotherapy. And there are very few people you expect anything to happen to your heart, to their heart. She's one of them. And on chemotherapy, she went into heart failure, which was a shocker to me. And so, and then I had another patient very similar to her who unfortunately died of heart failure and she was in her forties. So these two cases, um, they, they provoked my interest in cardio-oncology. Yes. And I'm like, why, why do we not, what is it about these patients who are perfectly healthy, were not old, didn't have diabetes, didn't have, a, what is it about these two patients? Why did they go into heart failure and so many don't? And then with, this, with the data that's coming out uh, from breast cancer, um, patients are surviving from breast cancer many, many years. 
90% overall survival, 10-year survival of patients with stage one early, early stage, stage one and stage two breast cancer. And long-term survival for early stage breast cancer increasing year by year as we study it, yet the, they are dying of heart disease. Right. 20, so why, we're curing one disease and we're allowing another to happen. So I, the, the cardiac survivorship clinic that I, we helped develop, that I helped develop at Moffitt, deals with patients upfront. So yeah. if you are at a risk, uh, you come and see me, you come and see the cardiologist as you're getting treatment, when you're getting treatment, for, if you're high risk. If you're gonna get these drugs, you need to, when you're finishing therapy, if you're getting an anthracycline, if you're getting trastuzumab, as soon as you finish therapy, when you're five years out, you're not done yet, you still need us. We're gonna follow your heart. We're gonna make sure your heart's okay. So the cardiac survivorship clinic. So uh, the, these uh, developments have taken place at my uh, place of work because we realize that in just treating the cancer is not enough. We have to treat the patient and we have to make sure they, they are around in the long run. You know, so I'm very passionate about over the, the patients who develop breast cancer or other cancers, especially with the new novel drugs that are coming out that have cardiac side effects. We, we can't just treat them and not worry about their heart because I mean, there's no point in them undergoing chemotherapy and radiation and hormonal therapy and, you know, targeted therapy for them 10 years later to develop heart failure and have a horrible quality of life or God forbid die from that disease. It's so. just unbelievable how even in, even through this, you're still behaving like partners, like you've been able to incorporate his passion in medicine into your passion in medicine and it's married so nicely in that, you know, this is an area where there's um, both extreme interests and growing, growing, growing data. Absolutely. So yeah. I, love, I love that part of the story uh, as well. Ruhi, what about, you know, you've already gone through so much at the, at the point of March of this year when it feels like the whole world shut down. How has COVID <laughs> kind of, created a new environment. Uh, oh, there are layers, Sarah. There are so many layers. I mean, honestly, uh, it's a f affected me, I guess, as it's affected you, um, as it's affected everyone. But then I worry about the nursing care for my husband. I, the, there was a, there were, can I work and can, will I have nurses? That was a big concern to help me, um, especially the nurses who I've become very attached to. I mean, um, in order to be my husband's nurse, they have to have, <laughs> <laughs> they, have to, they have to show a lot of commitment and my nurses will tell you <laughs> that I'm very picky when it comes to nursing, um, especially on the days that I'm not here. I have one nurse and I'll, call, I'll shout out her name, Kathy Riley, who's just amazing and she's, uh, she takes care of him on the days I work. And when she takes vacation, it's like, ah, I need to, I, I take vacation, you know, <laughs> she's one of, it's one of those situations. And then I have amazing night nurses and I have a really good team of nurses helping me with my husband. And I think that's what makes it manageable. But COVID, COVID and this pandemic, right when you think you've got everything in place, God shows you there's, there's more to worry about. And, and I was blessed that I was able to start seeing patients from home through telemedicine. So uh, some days I'm able to take, take care of patients from home, but chemo patients, you know, can't stall chemotherapy patients too long. And I'm now a medical oncologist, the only medical oncologist in the GYN program at Moffitt. And I love my role there. Um, the patient population is very similar to the breast cancer population, but it's not as large of a patient burden so that I'm able to work part-time. Um, as, as you can imagine, being uh, in the breast program for more than 10 years, I had accumulated a very large patient uh, um, population. And so it was, I couldn't really work part-time there. So and then I had to give up one of my passions, at least temporarily, <laughs> we'll see. Um, and I joined the GYN program, which is still taking care of women with cancer. And I absolutely, it's, I've been there for about a year now. And uh, I, it's, I just, I love being part of the team. It's an amazing team. My chair, Dr. Wenham, and all my colleagues are amazing. So I'm very, very blessed to be there. Um, but you can't put chemotherapy patients on hold, especially in ovarian cancer patients, or, you know, you can't put them on hold for too long. So we were still, we're, I don't think I really took off at all during this pandemic. We still went to work every week. Of course, we have changed the way we did things. Uh, obviously, I can't give my patients a hug anymore, which kills me. I can't, um, you know, I can't even shake their hands or, you know, the warmth 
it's so hard to take care of patients with two masks in between yes. in between <laughs> but it, yeah. you know it, how about the kids how about how they're coping with you know stay-at-home order as i said layers layers i mean this i mean i don't want to homeschool i'm not a teacher <laughs> but you know uh, and let's just say I ass I'm I'm very good at a delegation. Was <laughs> in charge of Zyra, Azim's in charge of Afraz. <laughs> so I, a delegation. I've I've got my older kids helping my younger kids, and it helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. And then how about how about self care? Like, what what do you how do you amidst all of this make time for yourself? I know you started working out. Orange Theory, I think, is your gig. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a dick, I'm an addict. And so when they closed, I thought I would die. And when, and they're open now, but they have like every other station open and you have, and you, the, at least the one that I go to, they're being very strict about social distancing. And I'm, st I'm wearing them on, on, I started trying to wear a mask and it was almost impossible. So it's crazy. Um, but yeah, that's my, that's my, uh, that's the way I take care of myself. I, I absolutely have to do three to four sessions of Orange Theory a week. Otherwise, I feel incomplete. <laughs> when it was closed, I was running. That was a second, a second. I also, before all this, I have to give a shout out to uh, someone who's really helped me. Um, uh, when I came back um, from Texas, I had gained like 30 pounds and I wasn't taking care of myself because my only job was to sit next to my husband and that's all I did. And, and whatever Uber Eats delivered is what I ate. And I didn't want to be that person anymore. And I wanted, I wanted him to get healthier. And I wanted myself to get healthier. And mentally, I was not healthy either. So someone recommended um, um, this wonderful trainer to me who's also a, uh, a therapist. Wow. So she, Dara is really, Dara Fischetti is her name. I read her book and I was really inspired by her. And um, she's helped me not just by taking care of myself physically, but mentally as well. And uh, ways of looking at things, um, having that positive outlook, which I almost, I've always been an optimist, but this, this whole situation over the last few years of my life, really, they, it really challenged my <laughs> optimistic outlook. And, uh, um, and, the, and I just wanted that essence back. And I wanted me back. And I think she's, she was able to help me. And it's, it's sometimes really nice to have someone very objective who doesn't know you, you know, be able to tell you how to handle things, how to take care of things and sort of hold your hand on the way. And I, in my culture, seeking therapies uh, is really a taboo. Like we're supposed to be strong enough to do everything ourselves. I've never even considered going to a mental health uh, practitioner or psychiatrist. I had never even considered that, but I didn't realize how much I needed it. <laughs> Yeah. And um, we, we put so much undue pressure on ourselves. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. as women, despite or independent of whatever culture you come from, you know, you, you can just keep doing, keep figuring it out. You know, it's like you just push through. Um, yeah. And I think so many of us struggle with how do you push through mentally when you, you know, there's such a block there. So uh, it, it's great to hear that you know, not only did you take care of this from a mind perspective, but you kind of connected that mind and body. Yeah. And, and it is very connected to me. Like when I'm working out, when I'm exercising, when I'm taking care of my health, um, I'm also mentally much more clear and much thinking much better. And, um, and the pandemic challenged me in that way too. I wasn't able to do what I love and I wasn't able to take Nadim to therapy. I, therapy with Nadim is also an exercise for me as well. So <laughs> it's a hard work and and to say that he doesn't skip a day where he doesn't have therapy and we take him to outpatient therapy twice a week that's the days that thursdays i take off so that i can do that um, um and now my nurse who's amazing kathy takes him up because now because with the pandemic only one person can go but until then uh, i was there every thursday and tuesdays uh, my either one of my family members um would go with kathy um, and you know therapy is him getting therapy is also therapy for me because I can see him improving and important for me so that when you know god forbid he has a seizure or something happens where he takes a step back I can see myself sort of crumbling and I have to remember that okay wait this is just temporary it's going to go back the right direction again it's just a little bit of a pause but yeah, my, our life is now like 
and when Nadim is doing well, I'm doing well. And when he's not doing well, I'm not doing well. And I just, and it's nice to have Dara there uh, to hold my hand through those difficult times. Mm -hmm. really what do you, what's next? What do you, you know, is it just this therapy? You just keep on pressing, keep on pushing? Yeah, keep on pressing. I mean, realizing that this is not something that's going to happen over weeks or months, maybe even years. And realizing that every small thing like uh, that he does, for example, his left arm started moving. That's a miracle in itself. We never thought we'd get anything out of that left arm. Uh, the fact that he can sit on a, on a bench for six, seven minutes at a time now, when he wasn't able to even hold him up for 30 seconds, they would fall over. Get some course credit back. Being able to stand and put some weight on his legs. And the biggest accomplishment we had this past month, June, thank God, <laughs> was that we were able to go from a manual wheelchair to an automatic wheelchair. A uh, wheelchair that he can actually drive when he's alert, uh, which was not even something we even considered before. So those things keep us going. Um, I, I'm, I'm still very much of an optimist. I close my eyes and I can see my husband walking with a cane, with a walker. Yeah. It happen. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Hopefully sooner rather than later, but it will happen, inshallah, God willing. Yes, that's right. A, a recent, um, my pastor gave a recent, it was like around Easter, and he said sometimes we have to close our eyes to see what God has for us spiritually, because what we see in front of us isn't what his dream is for us. So it's just reminded me when you said I close my eyes and I see him walking. It's and honest, so and let me tell you, let me tell you the, the coolest thing. I mean, I'm a very spiritual person, but I like the week that I thought my husband, I, I was, we were fighting for his life. And uh, we, essentially he was having posturing, his intracranial pressures were going up, and the neurologist and neuro neurosurgeon had told me to prepare that he might not make it. I couldn't, I don't think I've stayed awake that many days in a row and I finally fell asleep. But you know what I dreamt that night when I finally fell asleep like four or five days after was Nadine walking with a cane. Wow. That first week. And, and then I came home and my, I mean, I, uh, my daughter came there and she told me she had the dream, the same dream the same night. Wow. Thank my you. brother told me that he had a similar dream where he, where my husband was sitting on the sofa and couldn't get up himself. And he asked, give me, pass me my cane. Wow. And we all had very similar dreams while my husband was still in a coma. Mm. So I think that was us. That was God telling us that, look, don't give up. You know, I took that as a sign that I just have, we just have to keep the faith that we have to keep working because God, knows that I need him back. I tell him all the time, I am not getting old without you. Okay, you better get better. I'm a big nag and he's, he still smiles and chuckles when I say that. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Ruhi, do you, what ended up happening to the person who was driving? You know, I have completely forgot about her and the first few months, all I did was want to I've to, uh, yeah, so I mean like, so the first few months, all I did was Google and research about this woman who did this to my husband and hasn't even reached out to me. And she turned out to be an alcoholic and a drug abuser who had been arrested on multiple DUIs before, um, whose license had been revoked, who was driving her boyfriend's car, our fiance's car, whom she killed in that accident. And then I, I felt that what punishment could she have received worse than that? That God punished her right in that instant. She has to live with the fact that she killed her own fiance by being drunk. Have I met her? No. Has she reached out to me? No. They invited me to go. The state attorney asked me to come to the, the, the sentencing. And I refused to go because I was afraid she was going to, she was going to be very apathetic and like not care. And that would tell me more. Mm. I decided not to go. And in my heart, I've forgiven her because it's not, it's not, it's not me to judge what happens to her. And I feel sort of sorry for her because at least I have my husband to love on, to hug, 
you know, to talk to. And she has to live with that guilt. And, and yeah. there's yeah. nothing worse than that. And as I thought maybe she'd reach out, and like she's pretty much traumatized my entire family, drinking and doing drugs while driving. That's so unacceptable. I mean, such a selfish person to put yourself and everyone else on the road in danger. And to think that this was her third DUI. Yeah, yeah. And, and, she's been, and she was 53 years old. I mean, there's no excuse for her not knowing that. Yeah. But what can you do? You, don't, you, you can't control anyone. You can't control anyone's actions. You can only control yourself. And I think it's a gift too from God that you've been able to release it and release her and release the outcome and know that, you know, God, he's there and he sees. And Honestly, I haven't thought about her since until you brought it up. I, I, last time I thought about her was the, when they were invited me to that, to the hearing. And they wanted me to bring, they actually wanted me to bring Nadim there. And I said, no, I'm not gonna put him through that either. I'm not going, yeah. you do with her what you will. Yeah. And then how about advocacy? You know, whether it be again, you know, advocacy against drunk driving, against, you know, public policy or even advocacy for traumatic brain injury. That's where that's where I was getting to. So um traumatic brain injury patients and, and spinal cord injury patients don't get the attention they deserve. I really believed in uh, activity-based therapy and I met a wonderful couple uh, when I came here. So let me go back. You reminded me of a very important story. Another part of my life, a very important part of my life is I serve as uh, on the board of directors at Stay and Step Rehab Center, okay? Um, um, Gabby and Romy um, were, became very important members of my family, my distant family, my, my, my extended family. When I came to Tampa, um, I reached out to everybody, say, hey, do you guys know I either I have to go to Orlando to a place called Core is what I heard, which um, and to go once a week or twice a week to get him activity based therapy. And they told me about Romy. Romy is a veteran who was shot. Uh, he had a he was shot in Afghanistan and and became a quadriplegic. Him and his wife started a rehab center here in Tampa called Stay and Step, and they had just started out uh, maybe a year before this happened to my husband, and we were in Texas and they were developing this rehab center here, and we didn't know anything about it. I, I, I trained, some of my training was at the VA hospital. So I reached out to uh, the VA hospital and they t directed me to Romy and Gabby. And I went, I went, met them. Oh my gosh, you cannot meet them and not fall in love. They're such wonderful people. Here's this guy, uh, he fought for our country. He got shot in the neck, becomes a quadriplegic and then he opens a rehab center to help people who don't have the benefits that he does, you know? So Nadim is, uh, goes there twice a week, and I, I, I've, whatever energy I have left after the work and kids goes to stay in step. Um, because we're growing it, we're expanding it. It's now called, when I came, it was, it was uh, Stay in Step Spinal Cord Injury Center, but now it's Stay in Step Brain and Spinal Cord Injury Center. And our biggest thing is activity-based therapy for patients like Nadim and for Romy. Because what happens is, excuse me, I will try not to curse. This idiotic insurance companies, okay, think that after two years, uh, they're washed their hands of us and they're like, okay, you've done all the therapy you can, you're plateaued, we're done with you. You figure it out on your own. And there's so few resources for patients, okay? Patients need activity-based therapy. They need their bodies moved. If they can't move it themselves, guess what? They need to be moved and they need to stand they need your bone density will go down if you don't have a weight bearing in your legs if your arms are not moved these muscles will atrophy and if you can't do it yourself somebody else had to, a machine or somebody had to help you do it but those machines that do it for you they are, they cost an arm and a leg and not everyone can afford it so gabby and romy not only do they um provide it they provide uh, they have a foundation that supplements whatever patients can afford Wow, amazing! And so I work very closely with that, come with with them. And um, as I said, I'm on the board of directors, and I I can see this um, rehab going very far, and I'm very excited to be part of it. Wonderful. Well, as part of this, we'll 
um, reach out to you to get all the information on Stay in Step so that we can have people. Uh, I know. I love Stay in Step. I wish I, you, I mean, if you uh, talk about inspired, Rami and Gabby, yes. they inspire every day. <laughs> them. We would love to have them on. You know, this whole forum is a forum where we can take a break from all the bad news that we hear on TV, the social media mess that we scroll into every single day and just give stories of hope. Ray, I could spend another week with you, but our time <laughs> closed. And I love talking to you, Sarah. I love talking to you. I love that you're my friend. I love that I get to just be in your life and to see Nadim and all of his incredible process, progress. And I never look at it as two steps forward or one step forward, two steps back. Every time I see him, all I see is his love and devotion for the family. I love how he looks at your kids. I love how your kids look at him. Um, I just feel like that so much of ever, uh, our own personal healing comes from our soul being loved. And yeah, absolutely. it's really incredible to but see. But it puts, it puts everything in perspective. And I mean, if there's one thing I have to just put out there, it's just that I, I wish people wouldn't concentrate on the small stuff. I mean, I, I go back and all those things that matter don't matter. They just don't. Who cares? Stop arguing with your wife over stupid stuff. Stop arguing with your husband over stupid stuff. I know we're human when we do, but it doesn't matter. I mean, appreciate the time you have together. I mean, enjoy life, the present, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And do what you can to leave a positive impact. I, I, everything that Nadine did before the accident, it's still there. His, the, the people that he helped, the, uh, the connections he made, there's, it's still there. Nobody cares about anything small. Nobody does. Yeah, no, I love that. That's, that's a message for the now too, for everything yeah. that all of us are yeah. going through. So Ruhi, thank you so much for being with us. We continue thank to- Thank you for having me. Nadim up to God, who is the author and physician, the greatest physician we can ever have, uh, and the author of our life. So we trust him that he will uh, work miracles in Nadim's life. Inshallah. We honor you for your faithfulness. Uh, and I continue to be inspired by you. And now through our audience, I know so many more people will be inspired by you and your story. So I thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, my I promised myself I wouldn't embarrass myself today, but I did a little bit. You didn't. Still. <laughs> you really didn't. Have a wonderful night and my love to you and your beautiful family. Good night. Stay safe, okay? You, you too. Bye-bye.